0: The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. We are in our, Lord willing, final week assessing this issue of the millennium. And it was raised in light of our journey through Isaiah 24, This is what we read there. On the day that the Lord, on that day, the day of His intrusion to bring judgment on the world, on that day the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. That is, all those who are high and all those who are low that stand against God and His people, He will punish them. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit They'll be shut up in a prison, and after many days, they'll be punished. After many days, they'll be punished. Then the moon will be confounded, the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and His glory will be before the elders. We read in Isaiah 27.1, in that day, Yahweh with His Hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan the fleeing serpent. Leviathan the twisting serpent. He will slay the dragon that is in the sea. So I've said I think this serpent is, is one of those high figures who is bound up, imprisoned for a season, and then after that it says he will be punished. So I'm taking some days... Next time we're gathered together with me, we'll be jumping into Isaiah chapter 40 and just pushing ahead through this book, looking at gospel-rich texts that focus on the servant Savior in the book of Isaiah. But today we are in the millennium once again, and I'm offering an argument, a biblical argument for a realized millennium meaning that the period of a thousand years that's spoken of in Revelation 20, which is where you can turn in your Bibles right now, Revelation 20, the period of a thousand years that's being envisioned there is actually the church age between the first and the second appearings of Jesus. Here's my thesis, that the millennium is realized during the church age as God limits Satan's deceptive powers and lets deceased Christians reign with Christ in heaven. The millennium began at Christ's resurrection in Pentecost and is concluded by a resurgence of Satan and his servants' deceptive assault against the church, followed by their defeat, that is, the defeat of Satan and his servants and their eternal judgment. So last week after class, I got an email from Scott Jameson saying okay, it would serve me and probably some others in the class to get a better grasp as to where the landscape is in evangelicalism regarding the question that we're dealing with. Or at least tell me where our Bethlehem leaders are at. So on Sunday, I sent out a poll to all of the Bethlehem College and Seminary faculty and all of the Bethlehem staff Elders and pastors. And I have been saying that, as best as I can assess, in my now in my 12th year at Bethlehem, that the two of the four positions that I presented, that these are the two that I think our leaders would most closely align with the historic premillennial position, wherein. We're in the church age right now. It will climax in the tribulation. Jesus will appear again, and the millennium will start thereafter. And then new heavens and the new earth will come after the millennium, all of that future. Or the amillennial or realized millennialism, millennial position, which I'm arguing for. Beginning with Christ, we have the church age, and all of this is pockets of tribulation. Selective tribulation throughout all time in various regions of the world that will culminate in a global tribulation at the end. Christ will return, and but Christ is reigning right now, and that the saints who die are already reigning with Him today. Indeed, all of us who have experienced spiritual transformation, spiritual salvation are reigning with Christ today. And then... Um, the souls of the dead who are reigning with Christ will be united with new bodies, new heavens and the new earth. So here's the layout as I got from my um, survey. So we have historic premillennial position here. You've got Pastor Tom Stellar. Nacelli just isn't sure. 50-50, <laughs> he says, between these two. Then you've got James McLaughlin, Professor, President Tomlinson, um, President of Bethlehem College and Seminary, Pastor Matt Westerholm, downtown campus uh, worship pastor, Pastor Gil McConnell, Brad Nelson, and Jason Meyer says, I'm still 10% there, but 90% over here. And his 10% is actually Revelation 20. He says, I approach every other text in the whole Bible as an amillennialist, but I still can't get over Revelation 20. And so he's 10 and 90. Then we've got Pastor Jack Delk who says he would fit in a dispensational premillennial position, but he modifies it with a mid-trib rapture. Then, as I told you already, the Joe Rigney, he's always on the outside. Uh, he's the, our token post-millennialist. And then we have most of the faculty and staff pastors at Bethlehem would affirm the view that I'm arguing for in this class today. Realized Millennialism. So that would be Brian Tabb, half of Andy, <laughs> Matt Crutchmer, Travis Myers, Ryan Griffith, all those faculty at Bethlehem, college and seminary. Chuck Stedham is a 25 on mill, 75 undecided Pan mill, meaning it's all going to pan out some way. But he, he, he's kind of, he favors the, he, he has something going here in the amill side. Um, we have uh, Zach, thank you. Zach Howard at the seminary. Jason Meyer, here's his 90% half. I don't know if that means like his feet or his, the top of his head, which one's on each side. But, uh, Um, so then we've got Bowers, uh, Jonathan Bowers, he's a faculty at Bethlehem, um, we've got, my and all these names are leaving me, Paul Poteet, Ken Curry, Daniel Vizbicki, Kenny Stokes, Vince Johnson, David Livingston, uh, Richie Starks, and uh, Aaron Davich. All of them realize millennialists. Then we've got um, John Beckman and Lance Kramer, both faculty at Bethlehem. They're still in the pan mill realm. Uh, not quite certain. Um, Brother Ken Anderson, Keith Anderson, pray for him. He fell last night, hurt his head. He was found on his driveway. Um, and he's okay, he's stable, but um, just, just concerning him, Brian Pickering, Dan Holst, Pastor Chuck, Pastor Sam, Pastor Sam sent me an extended long email telling me why he's still undecided and uh, so you asked, there it is, what does Piper mean? Yeah, he says he's an optimistic pre So Piper would put himself here, an optimistic premillennialist. I've heard Pastor John say that, and I could only take a stab guessing what he means, so I'm not exactly certain. He would affirm Pastor John, and I've heard him share this story, some of you have heard it, Um, There was an older brother when he first came in the 1980s to Bethlehem who was confident in this camp, dispensational, premillennial, holding to a pre-trib rapture that Jesus is going to come and take the church out of here and that the church will not experience the extensive tribulation. And Pastor John said, "I, I don't think that. I think we'll live through it. But know this, and I would say the same thing if you find yourself holding to a rapture of the church that means the church will leave at some point before the tribulation or maybe midway through the tribulation and that happens to be the actual position of scripture then when you go if, if you would just you know, grab onto the rest of us um, that would be great because we would want to go with you um, but I will say this if it happens that as the historic pre-mill guys and the amill guys affirm, the church is going to live through the ultimate tribulation, and that the church even now has, is experiencing real pockets of tribulation all over the globe. As John said in 1 John 2:19, you've heard that it's the last hour. I tell you, it is the last hour. You've heard that the antichrist is coming. I tell you that many antichrists have already come among us. That's why we know it's the last hour. And the last hour is the phrase in the Greek of how Daniel and only Daniel, in Daniel's, every time Daniel says, this is what will happen in the last days, this is what will happen in the last days. The Greek translator of Daniel always translated it the last hour. And John likes Daniel. And so when he says, we know it's the last hour, he's got Daniel in the back of his mind and he's saying Tribulation is already upon us. False teaching and persecution, the two tenets of the anti anointed one in the book of Daniel. That is the Antichrist in the book of Daniel, the one who is against the, the Redeemer that God will raise up. His two key traits are false teaching and persecution. And John said they've been happening since the days of Christ against the church. And yet it can't hold the church. Oh, by symbolic, meaning yes. It's still, a, it's still a millennium, but the thousand year label is a symbol for an extensive amount of time, perfect in God's mind. Use of numbers throughout Revelation would point in the direction of symbolism. And even those who hold to a historic pre-mill future millennium, most of them would affirm we're not looking for a specific uh, like the thousand year time is up and now it 's over. It would be much more akin to with God, a day is like a thousand years. No, a thousand years is like a day that 's what I mean with God. Elizabeth The question is, where does Dr. Mike Rustin fall? He would um, he would fall here he he doesn 't hold to classic dispensationalism. He would hold that the church will will go through the tribulation, that it will get greater than it is now. It'll be global, and the church will go through. um, And then there will be an actual historic millennial period um, where Christ is reigning in body on earth, where there are those who have resurrected... Um, where there's a mixture of those who've been transformed and those who haven't been. That's what the millennium requires, a future millennium. That there are still sinners on earth, and, there are sti- and then there's the redeemed. And um, So if you've ever gone to a Revelation seminar at Bethlehem and Dr. Rustin has taught, his approach to Revelation is different than mine, and he would fall in the, the left column. Professor Rigney's view is right here. Um, it's post-millennium in that Christ Christ's return comes after rather than before the millennial period. And what the millennial period is is very comparable to what I'm arguing it is, but he views it as future rather than present. So that he, the post-millennial view thinks that, okay, we're in the church age and it's bad. But a time will come where the church will actually fill the globe with the, that the main religion, the dominant voice, the, it'll be a, a period of peace, a period of um, where the church has just filled everything and everyone is recognizing it. Not that everyone will be saved, but that um, it will be a period of peace and success and great victory for the church. So rather than things getting worse before Jesus comes, things will get better before Jesus comes. And as you can see, most of the staff at Bethlehem, most of the staff at Bethlehem, both, most of the staff at Bethlehem don't think that that's the right reading of the text. Uh, so the question is, when I, when I started teaching at Northwestern in 2005, I was a very comfortable historic pre-mill guy with questions. So I probably would have been 60-40. And it's been an increasing journey over the last... Um, eight or nine years of reading the prophets increasingly that have taken away text after text that I thought was a future millennial text and identified it with the age of Christ, the inaugurated millennial view, that in Jesus' coming, He's bringing this. He's already reigning. And so I would say um, I've been one who's been very comfortable saying I'm an amillennialist for years and but it was already happy I, I was already wrestling with arguments um, from I mean it, it's been a process of multiple years of, of wrestling and seeing things way out. How does the, elder of faith the elder affirmation of faith at Bethlehem requires, and celebrates that Jesus will return bodily, that the church will rise bodily, that we will see the defeat, complete defeat of all evil, and that Christ will reign with His people forever. It's that broad. And that's why all of these can be part of the leadership at Bethlehem Baptist Church. All these views and still joyfully affirm. And and in my mind, the the idea that um, Christ has inaugurated, but not consummated, begun but not completely fulfilled Old Testament hopes is necessary in order to read the New Testament rightly. Most people put the doctrine of the last things at the end of the book, like, have any of you seen Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology? So it's a big book of doctrine, and the last chapter is the last things. I would be more prone to put the chapter on the last things first, because all the church's doctrine is end times theology. All the New Testament is latter days theology. It's understood to have been inaugurated. And so there's part of the latter things that haven't come about, but a big part of it is already, already happening. And so we, we understand this inbreaking of the future and the person of Christ to be an inaugurated reality. And every, everyone would affirm that type of language. The question is just, on the specific question of this millennium, How are we to understand it within the big flow of the Bible? And I would put this, where Bethlehem does, as a bottom-tier issue. Meaning that godly brothers and sisters that are part of the same body can function day in and day out without very much of a difference in our pursuit of God at all. And have differences of opinion on this this one issue. The question is, does the historic pre-mill view... Have built into it the idea that, what was your word? Nation of, Nation of Israel is waiting for the fulfillment of specific promises. Now, let me offer this in two sides. I'll just, the premillennial view, whether you're historic premill or dispensational premill, does have built into it, usually, The idea that there are certain promises given to Israel that necessitate fulfillment in something other than the new heavens and the new earth, that are not done yet. Specifically, it's the land promises. Now, if you restrict that future land promise to a national state of Israel in the future, meaning that all those future Jews will still be part of the church, but they have an inheritance that is distinct from all the adopted Gentiles that are part of the church and that the land promises are specifically for a national Jewish people, then that makes you dispensational premillennial. But if you believe that the land promise, still that, that the Bible would require an actual fulfillment of a land promise before the new earth, but that both Jews and Gentiles, because they're all one man in Christ, all of them adopted into Jesus and Jesus has purchased it, that when He comes and reigns on earth, then both Jews and Gentiles will enjoy the land together, but that the land promise still requires fulfillment prior to a new earth. That would make you a historic premill guy. Now you could hold to either historic premillennialism or amillennialism believing that in Jesus every promise is yes, That in Jesus is bound up the land promise. In Jesus, His Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, fills the church. He is the localized temple. We don't have a building anymore. We have Jesus. So that in Jesus, you meet the very presence of God and a location. And that location now through the church has moved from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. That the temple in its expanding through the people of God, that the land promise is beginning to experience its global reality spiritually and then it will include the whole earth as it says in Romans 4:13 what Abraham was expecting was to inherit the world and that it'll come in the new heavens and the new earth when the temple has become everything the holy of holies has filled everything the centralized Jerusalem the city of Jerusalem is filled the whole planet and this is the view that I have, you could be either a historic pre-mill guy that says it's not required to have a millennium in order to fulfill all the Old Testament promises. It's not required, but it is taught. Or you could be an amill that says it's not required and it isn't taught. That the land in, in the Old Testament was but a picture of something greater. It was always expected to fill everything, and in Jesus it will come. And it'll come in the new heavens and the new earth. So we're not pushing aside a land promise. We're seeing it reach its ultimate culmination in filling the whole world in a new earth. Just as God had planted Adam in paradise, called him to serve and guard. And not only that, there's a garden and outside are the beasts of the field. And God's call was... Fill the earth, multiply and subdue it. Yet his commission was to serve and guard this sphere called the garden. But he's supposed to fill the earth, multiply and subdue it, suggesting that as he serves the garden, there would be an expansion of the garden. That the garden would be ever growing until the glory of God, through his image bearers, filled the earth as the waters covered the sea. That that was the original vision. The promised land had the similar scope. That it started with lands, and that always the vision was that it would fill, it started with a land, and it would fill lands. And in Jesus, we see that happening. So where do we put Isaiah chapter 2, where Jerusalem will be raised up and all the nations stream to it? I put that as already happening right now. As the book of, as Galatians 4, 25 says, Jerusalem is already our mother, meaning that That holy city has given birth to us and we have new birth certificates, as it says in Psalm 87. Whether you're from Germany or Ireland or Nigeria or Kenya, Psalm 87 says all of us have new birth certificates so that in Zion it says this one was born there. This one was born there. And the book of Hebrews chapter 12 explicitly says, we have not come to Mount Zion. All of us as Christians have already come to the Jerusalem that is above. We've gathered to that Jerusalem already. So I would see in Jesus' coming, He's bringing Jerusalem to earth. And in our coming to Jesus, we're fulfilling the promises of a global salvation, both Jesus and... Reaching out, ultimately through his church. And wherever the church goes, Jesus' presence is there. The temple is being experienced. And so as people gather to Jesus, wherever they're at on the planet, they're gathering to Jerusalem. And it's being fulfilled. The in the, in the, in the... Oh, the present-day modern temple mount yeah. in so the question is, yeah, is that a relevant issue in my theology or is it not? The, the physical location of the temple in Jerusalem right now. And I would say it's not irrelevant in my theology, but it's probably not relevant in the way that you might be thinking of. By what I mean is that is that the location of Jerusalem itself on earth, I think is like any other city on the planet, and not any more special or distinct. The Jerusalem in heaven means everything. But, did anything happen in 1948 that is significant on the map, that is the bringing together of the nation-state of Israel? I don't see that promised anywhere in the Bible, that that would happen. Those that would be part of the restoration, all of them would be surrendered to God as king. And that's not at all what happened in 1948. That's, not what, that, that's just a physical people who, are, who God declared in Hosea are not my people. They're like the nations, most of them. And they became a territory just like South Sudan became a country last year. But I believe we're still anticipating... Heightened jealousy to rise from Jews toward the work of God among the Gentiles until all of the Gentiles and all the Jews who God has elected in Christ are brought together. And the very fact that there is the highest concentration of Jews on earth right now surrounding the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, the highest concentration of Jews calls the church to... Be at work there, Jews and Gentiles. And we've got global partners who are on the ground living there with a heart focus for the Jewish nation. God, ethnicity is still part of the future. The nations, numerous tongues. And at the front end, just as the gospel Paul says in Romans 1.16 is for the Jew first and also to the Greek, in Romans 2.6 or 7... He says future judgment will be to the Jews first and then to the Greek. So they're the ones who Paul says in Romans 2 and in Romans 9, Romans 11, have rejected the Messiah. Yet to them was the patriarchs. To them were the covenants. To them was adoption. To them was the law. Indeed, from them came the Messiah. And God has not pushed them aside. He will still do a work of restoring an ethnic people though I wouldn't call it a national people. An ethnic people and working among the Gentiles, gathering together one people of God in Christ, made up of Jew and Gentile. All of them, though, having to be adopted. Every Jew is considered not my people when they're born onto this planet. Since the days of Jesus. So that the offspring of the Messiah are only spiritual so that Paul can say in Romans 4 I think it's verse uh, sorry Galatians 4 uh, verses 2 through 4 that even the Jews and the Gentiles all of them all, everyone has to be adopted into the family and the only way you're adopted is by faith so there's no special priority in that sense salvation is in Christ alone by faith alone for all from Revelation 20, feeling that, as they're reading the book of Revelation, that where Revelation 19 ends, we're supposed to just keep reading the story into Revelation 20. So let's just look there at Revelation 19... And look at the end of how how this works out in Revelation 19, and I think you can immediately get a sense for why they've gone where they've gone. Look at verse 11 of Revelation 19 with me. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. I believe that's Christ coming at the end of the age. His eyes are like a flame of fire, on His head are many diadems, and He has a name written that no one knows but Himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, His own blood, and the name by which He is called the Word. So this is the same author who wrote, in the beginning was the Word in John 1. He's called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. I'm arguing that among those armies will be Joel England. Who in, Joel, who in Revelation chapter 2, it is said that among the saints, he will rule them, that is the nations God has given, those who conquer who persevere all the way to the point of death, trusting in Jesus, the one who conquers, who keeps my word into the end, to Him I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. That is the one who conquers, will rule the nations with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. This is Jesus talking. So, Christ will arrive with His armies, I saw the angel, verse 17, back in chapter 19. I saw the angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captives. Notice it's the great supper. If you remember Zephaniah, God has a sacrifice. It's called the day of the Lord. And people will consume the sacrifice the guests are invited in to eat and those that are sacrificed are not animals but people to eat the flesh of kings the flesh of captains the flesh of mighty men the flesh of horses their riders the flesh of all men both slave and free i saw the beast and the kings of the earth the beast and the kings isaiah 24:25 The high ones and the kings of the earth. Those are the two that are bound for a season and then punished. I think this is punishment. I saw them with their armies gathered to make the war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. So there's a, a battle here. The beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done signs by which he deceived those who'd received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two, that is the beast and the false prophet, were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. So the armies of the beast and the prophet gathered against the sun, against the word of God, and in the end they were all destroyed. But then we read, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent who is the devil and bound him for a thousand years. So you just read the story on through and it seems as though, oh wait, we're not done. The beast and the prophet were the henchmen of the Satan and now Satan's going to be judged. And so we read that the thousand years happens and then... We come to verse 7 of chapter 20. And when the thousand years were ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for the battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They marched up over the broad plain of the earth, surrounded the camp of the saints, the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven, consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. And then the ESV says, where the beast and the false prophet were. And that sounds like they were already there. And they will be tormented day and night forever. So if you just read the story that way and don't put a full break between 19 and 20, the result is premillennialism. And that's, that flow is what Pastor Jason says. He can't get over it. And it still makes him, even though every other text in the Bible that I've pointed to many of them suggest an amil reading to Pastor Jason... When he reads Revelation 20, it seems as though it's chronological flow successively after, in succession after chapter 19. And that brings forth the idea that there's a final judgment at the end of the tribulation and then there's a millennial period and then another judgment and another battle. Two Two Armageddon's, correct. Correct. That the battle, if you look at verse 8, the word... So you see Gog and Magog in chapter 20, verse 8. Satan will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog to gather them for the battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. Now what's I would just say, if all the enemies of God were killed a thousand years earlier, now we have... Enemies of God that are like the sand of the sea. And they've come from somewhere, apparently grew during the time when Jesus is reigning on earth and animosity is put down and Satan's in a bottomless pit. That there seems to be some level of inconsistency there. But notice also that in verse 8, it says he wants to gather them for battle. The ESV just says battle. The Greek text has the battle. Gather them for the battle. And in chapter 19, a battle was mentioned. Verse 19, 19, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make the battle. It's exactly the same word. Paneras. And so the, in my mind, the ESV translator is probably a historic premill guy. I think because he, he, he's, he's not distinguishing the fact that it's the battle rather than a battle. And if you have the battle in chapter 20 and the battle in chapter 19, I think most likely they're the same battle. And that means then that we're supposed to be reading potentially the book of Revelation not as a chronological schema, but as a progression of parallelisms. Seven of them, where there's these cycles that keep retelling the same story from Christ's Resurrection to His second coming from different angles with different elements in each story and that at 19, I'm arguing, is a full break. And that at chapter 20, the story starts over again right at the beginning and the millennium is the church age. And that the battle that 20 verse 8 talks about is the same battle we read at the end of 19. In Revelation nineteen six, the marriage of the Lamb is anticipated so I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters, like the sound of a mighty pearl of th- peals of thunder crying out. This is, this is like a culminating event. Like salvation is finally coming. Ultimate end. And, and scholars will read the marriage supper of the Lamb as talking about nothing in the millennium but after the last judgment. That's when the, full, the final end comes. But it's setting us up for the battle that's portrayed at the end of 19. And it says, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage supper of the Lamb, the marriage of the Lamb has come, his bride has made herself ready. In my mind, that seems to be setting us up for what Revelation 21 talks about. Show me the bride. And he shows him Jerusalem coming down from heaven. New heavens and new earth. The time has come for the groom and the bride to be reunited. And then what happens right after this event is the rider on the white horse bringing a battle that seems to be the last of all battles. And then there's a thousand more years until the marriage supper of the Lamb is actually realized in a premillennial view. Even though they're singing the song at the end of 19 as if it's the last battle is coming, the groom is on his horse, he's coming to get his bride. I think that's how we're supposed to read it. And then there's a full break and the story begins again. Now we've got nine minutes. And I haven't even gotten to slide three, right? It's a symbolic nine minutes, (laughs) right, right. Okay. So, one thing that we've done here is, um, unexpectedly, we have introduced something that I haven't gotten to argue for yet. And that is that Revelation is best read as this progressive parallelism. Notice how this seems to be working in the book. There's a prologue. And then, the seven letters to the churches, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, there's seven visions of warfare, seven bowls of plagues, seven visions of victory, seven visions of the end and new creation. And there's seven of them. And each one has seven parts. And what's amazing is that each of the seven parts... Sorry, so there's seven total here. Then there's, each one of these has seven distinct units that we could lay out. Um, I have them all here, all the sevens. It's all there. But what I want to draw attention to is this. The seven visions of victory come to an end at 1921. At and I'm saying that a new seven starts at 20 verse 1. But to argue this, why don't you turn with me back in your Bibles to Revelation 20. You can take out your handout. I'm going to force myself to use it this week because we didn't get to it last week. And what I want to see, what I want you to see is what appears to be a fresh beginning at chapter 12, verse 1. That Revelation 11 is portraying the ultimate end, the same end that we read about at the very end of the book. So just turn with me back to Revelation 12. Actually let your eye go back to Revelation 11. Revelation 11 verse 7. And when they had finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit, that's the abyss, will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Remember, remember, How in Revelation 20, the beast is tossed to the bottomless pit, and then after a time he's allowed to rise. I think that's it's talking about the rising, which means that we're setting ourselves up for the very last battle. Notice that in 11.7 it says, to make war. That sounds like it's in a verbal form, to make war, but it's really to make a war, to make a battle. And this is the very first time in the book of Revelation when we hear about this battle, and it's... Without an article. It's not the battle, it's a battle. And then we hear after this, this word shows up again three more times and every time it's definite. The battle, the battle, the battle. And we see the battle in Revelation 19, 19, and the battle in Revelation 20, verse 8. And I'm suggesting it's the same battle that we're talking about here. Once you learn about a battle, you can call it the battle because everyone knows which one you're talking about. And it's not multiple battles, it's a single battle. So then, the war comes, and God intrudes. Verse 15 of chapter 11. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and His Christ, and He shall reign forever. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord. This is the end. There's nothing more. Satan is defeated. And the 24 elders who sit on the thrones before God fell on their faces saying, We give thanks to the Lord God Almighty, who is, who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. The time for the, for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Chapter 11 ends a unit, and then we start in chapter 12. And what I'm saying is, you've come to the end of the church age, the end of the culminating event in chapter 11. Now we're going to go back and we're going to look at the story again from a new angle. And we're going to start in heaven. And a great sign appeared in heaven. Look at chapter 12, 1 with me. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and on her head, a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant, was crying out in birth pains and agony and giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. So on the one side you see a woman getting ready to give birth to a child. A child of hope. A child of promise. Think Isaiah. And the woman is a picture, I believe, of the people of God that have been hoping. It's it's a picture of Jerusalem. The ultimate Jerusalem. It's a picture of, but it's also embodying, embodied in the person of Mary. It's the offspring of the woman that Genesis 3.15 promised would slay the serpent. It's the woman. And she's giving birth. But there's another vision. And another sign appeared. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. That's Daniel chapter 7. His tail swept down a third of the stars of the heaven and cast them to the earth. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, it might devour it. Think about what Herod was trying to do when Jesus was born. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron. That's Psalm 2. I will make the nations your heritage and you will rule the kings of the earth with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to His throne. The child king was not held by the scheming plans of the dragon. He was delivered, and now he's reigning with God, the ascension. And the woman, though, whose embodiment of the people of God, of Jerusalem... She fled into the wilderness where she has placed and where she has a place prepared for God in which she is to be nourished for three and a half years, 1260 days. This is the last week of Daniel chapter seven, 70 weeks of years. The last week has the first three and a half years of peace, the second three and a half years of chaos. And the woman embodying the people of God. The child is safe, and the, peop- the, the, the woman is now being preserved in the wilderness from the dragon during this period. Think, the devil is bound. Now, we're going to retell the story again. It's the same group, but we're going to retell it now from a new angle. Now, war was in heaven. And as we do, I want you to take out your sheet here, and... Look with me at the parallels that we're going to find between Revelation 12 and Revelation 20. I think we're telling the same story. Now, war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. That's verse 7. Verse 8 But the devil, the dragon, was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. So, verse 9, the dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, that's exactly the language that we find in Revelation 20, was thrown down, that one who is called the devil and Satan, notice who he is, he's the deceiver of the world. He was thrown down to where? Not an abyss, to the earth. That's what I was arguing, that the abyss is none other than the sphere of his rule on earth. And His angels were thrown down with Him. All those demons that we see in Jesus' day are filling people's lives. And yet now the future is going to intrude the power of God. And He's going to begin to cast out the demons. Because He's bound the strong man. And I heard a loud voice in heaven, verse 10. Now, hear this, I'm saying this started with the rising of Christ. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ, all, of that, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. That's right. what He declares right after His resurrection. The authority of Christ have come. Why? For the accuser of our brother, brothers has been thrown down. Last week I talked about that. Satan's accusing power. And Brother Tom prayed it this morning in his pastoral prayer, filled with rich theology. Satan can no longer accuse people, believers, before the throne of God because now God has proven that He is just and the justifier of all who believe by sending His own Son, Jesus. They've conquered Him. So... Uh, The accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. The one who accuses them day and night before our God, no longer is He there. And they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of His testimony. Verse 11, For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe, hear this. When we say that Satan has been cast down, do we mean that he is fully separate? No. It says, woe, To you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. That's what's happening today. But, even though he has great wrath against the people of God, that great wrath cannot stop the church. He can't accuse us anymore. We are held in the grip of the Son and of the Father. And Satan knows, right now, his time is short. Yeah, it's a millennium. Compared to the ages that preceded, his time is short. And at the end of the millennium, I believe, he will be brought all the way down. And he knows it. And when the dragon saw that he'd been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman, who I'm saying is an embodiment of of the true Jerusalem, the true people of God who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent in the wilderness. Like Christ in Mark chapter 1. In the wilderness, that's where He was, that's where we're all born, but now we have a protector. And He comes and swoops down and and protects us takes the church to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, times and half a time, which is likely another allusion to the three and a half years, 1260 days. Straight out of Daniel. The serpent poured water, listen to this, like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. That's what the devil has been doing for 2,000 years, trying to destroy the woman and her offspring. But notice what happens. The the flood of the river waters come out. The earth then came to help the woman. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from its mouth. God, who is over all things, will not let the church be destroyed by the scheming of the devil. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. So there's the woman and there's offspring. There's the image of Jerusalem, and then all the church in every generation is considered the offspring of the woman, who's united with the offspring, the male child. And Satan is working in every generation to try to bring down her offspring on those who are the offspring, those who keep the commandments of God, who hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sea, on the sand of the sea. And then the story continues. My point is to say, we've gone back to the beginning. Wrong slide. We've gone back to the beginning. Uh, Another wrong slide. We've gone back to the beginning when we're in chapter 12. And that same recap, parallelism, is happening, I'm saying, seven times in the book. And the story is retold. And when you get to chapter 19 and we read, we read a war is coming. And then in 16 we read about the war. In 19 we read about the war. In Revelation 20 we read about the war. All of these wars, I'm saying, are the same war. And we're just walking our way through cycle after cycle through the book. And that's how we're supposed to read Revelation that it's not a chronological movement from Revelation 19 to 20, but we're supposed to recognize that the story has started over one last time and it'll culminate in glory. I had so much more I had hoped to say, but that's okay. All my notes will be online and you can look there. If you want a much more expanded version of realized millennialism, I would encourage you to get Sam Storm's book called Kingdom Come. Where would I be if I didn't have people to help me? I just pause and the voice comes. It's just awesome. It's called Kingdom Come, Pastor Sam Storms. He is on the board of Bethlehem College and Seminary. He's a pastor down in Oklahoma City. Something like that down there, and uh, he's also spoke at our pastors, at our conference for pastors and church leaders many many times. Such a dear brother. His book, Kingdom Come, an argument for realized millennialism, an argument for amillennialism. So here we are, chapter twenty four. When it says there is a temporary imprisonment and future punishment of all those hostile to Yahweh's reign, I think we're talking about the church age in that passage, 24, 21 through 23. Then the praises rise from the saved remnant at the humbling of the rebels. This stresses the defeat of the rebels, but also the deliverance of the saints. And it may even be a picture of this this period where saints have been delivered and they're already celebrating in heaven in the presence of God. Then we move to the feast for the saved and the swallowing up of death. The actions of God, He will make a great feast when He and His bride are reunited. 25, 6 through 8. And then the second action is that He will crush death forever. And we see it unpacked at the end of Revelation And then the cry of the saved that will last forever praises to the one who has won victory for us. So all these slides will be available within the next couple weeks. You can just go in and type Isaiah and then you'll be able to see. The whole list is there up to chapter 11. All the lectures are there. All the PowerPoints are already there. You could just go to jasonderoshi.com and find it all. All right. Father, thank you for helping us. These were such good, rich questions today. I, I hope that folks were served. I pray that you would minister and continue to guide us. All of us just rest um, just rest. celebrating that you're in charge and you win. That's what matters most and that, that you're, in, you're for us. That's what makes your winning good news. You're for us and not against us in light of our union with Christ by faith. So we praise You, Father, we praise you, Son. We praise you, Spirit, who gives us what we need to persevere to the end. To him who overcomes, you will give him the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. We long for that food. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and biblical theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason Deroshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. Deroshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ.